Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Anytime she listened to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Prince for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. I'm John McAdam. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling, the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there. Actually, it's the only wicked good podcast of any kind. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. Before I get rolling, I want to thank Mark Roland and Chris Berg for donating to the show. Thank you very much, gentlemen. If you would like to donate, it's Pro Wrestling Archives, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, you can use PayPal. No amount is too low, and certainly no amount is too high. Now, this podcast comes out on July 2nd, 2021, five days before the 25th anniversary of the 1996 Bash at the Beach card, known primarily for the heel turn of Hulk Hogan which was once unthinkable, but at that time, by that time, probably unavoidable. And here to discuss that show with me is popular guest Thomas Bain. Thomas, thank you for coming back. Thank you very much, John. And when you preface the word popular for me, you would think that if I was so popular, I'd have been back within the last seven months. But nevertheless, happy to be here today, John. Thank you so much. The reason Thomas hasn't been on in seven months Thomas and I did what might have been the best stick to wrestling ever seven months ago when we talked about Dave Meltzer's interview with Ole Anderson. And I have something else planned for Thomas that I just haven't gotten around to yet. I've got you circled for another very important show. Am I, is this, when you say a very important show, is this like the very special episode of um... – Punky Brewster, where Punky gets locked in the refrigerator, like the very special episode, or is it a very important episode? It's both special and important, and it's something that, it's like the Ole Anderson episode. I'm like, all right, I've got a really good, I've got a show with a ton of potential. Who can I have on it? And I put a lot of thought into it, and I picked you, and I got you for this next one, too. Fantastic. <laughs> all right. So 25 years ago, 1996, Great American uh, Bash at the Beach. I keep saying Great American Bash. Bash at the Beach. I can't believe the mid-90s was already 25 years ago, but here we are. Now, I don't think I've seen this show since it aired 25 years ago. Aside from the main event, which I watched a few times, they're running an angle. Scott Hall had basically just gotten to the promotion. I want to say six or seven weeks ago. Kevin Nash made his debut at the previous pay-per-view, which was like four weeks ago. So we've got this red-hot invasion angle going on. They don't know what to call Hall and Nash. They're just like, we know who they are, and they're already in the main event. It's Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and a surprise tag team partner in the main event against Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Savage. So a lot of anticipation coming in. Yeah, and and... Nash did come out on Nitro before the Great American Bash because the Great American Bash was where Nash powerbombed Eric Bischoff off the stage. And the premise of that was, will they you know, answer the challenge to WCW? And it would be their three guys from WCW versus Hall, Nash, and whomever. And we'll get into the whole uh, third person, I'm sure, down the road. But I was not a 
Meltzer reader at the time I was uh, going into eighth grade. And honestly, my wrestling fandom had really waned to the point where if this angle would have been a dud, I might have been out completely, to be quite honest. And I just by happenstance saw the moment where Scott Hall jumped the railing on Nitro, which it feels to me it was like Memorial Day, but I could be wrong on that. It was Memorial but, uh, Day. Okay. Because I remember I, uh, we were off school that day, so I, that's one of the things that came to mind with that. But it was really, for me, it was like the last, because wrestling had really gotten really bad in my eyes in 1995. And I did watch the very first Nitro, but it, there was a dungeon between Dungeon of Doom, between really what was going on the WWF, I was starting to fade away. And this angle, and this, this moment at Bash to the Beach, frankly, was it probably bought me another four, four and a half years of fandom. I was the same way in 1996. I mean, the WWF, in my opinion, was so bad. WCW, I thought for years, was so bad. ECW was getting, I liked ECW, but it was, um, I know I liked it in 1996 and Smoky Mountain was gone. So, I mean, I was, you know, my wrestling thing now was more Japan tapes than anything. And I just prefer the United States style of wrestling where you have feuds and interviews and crazy characters. And, and when you look at it, WCW, had they not run this angle, I don't know what their next step was going to be. I mean, they were doing the right thing, bringing the cruiserweights in, emphasizing guys like Malenko and Eddie Guerrero and, and Steven Regal and, and bringing Chris Jericho in. But those guys were never going to get to that top echelon. We were going to keep getting recycled matches between Hogan and Luger, Hogan and Flair, Hogan and, and the WWF retreads in the Dungeon of Doom. I don't know, and maybe, maybe I'm just looking at it in a grandiose fashion, but I don't see WCW lasting into 1998 without this angle. I I mean, without, I mean, Eric Bischoff did some smart stuff. He created Nitro, which was a hit, but you're right. I mean, had they not gone after WWF guys, they would not have been perceived as major league. And that's really important in the wrestling business. I've said this before, but like by 1997, People were no longer asking, you know, when is Sting, Luger, whoever going to the WWF? They were asking when Bret Hart was going to WCW. Exactly. And that was one of the things, too. I'm, again, I wanted people that really – I did read things on the internet, but I never actually read the hard copy newsletter from Meltzer. So I, even now, I mean, I've never read – I've read things in the past, whether it was the Screwjob, the NWO, some of the obituaries. But I'd never read Meltzer in the now. So I would think, you know, when Shawn Michaels got injured and, you know, supposedly retired, I thought maybe he was going to use that to parlay his way into the WCW and NWO. At that point in time, from really the moment this Bash to the Beach happened until six months after Stone Cold won the WWF title, which would have, say, fall of 98. So two years and change. I looked at these companies as complete equals. I can see that right around this time. I mean, WCW is definitely on the rise at this point, And this angle, all the, the outsiders angle 
combined with what happened on the Bash at the Beach, really put them on the map, in my opinion. And you have to realize, too, that with WWF, minus Steve Austin, 1996 was a rough year for them. You had Shawn Michaels, you know, feuding with uh, Sid Vicious, feuding with Vader. Neither one really drew the needle. You did have Mankind and The Undertaker in an upper mid-card feud, but Mankind wasn't Mankind yet. A lot of people viewed him as being just another notch on the belt of The Undertaker and where he would go. I, 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 I'll put it this way. In 1996, I would have bet money that Mick Foley would not have been in the WWF in 99, 98, something like that. I thought he was going to be a, maybe work his way down the card, sort of the old Vince McMahon senior way they treated their, their top heels. Their top heel would feud with the top guy, and then he would lose the feud and then work his way down the card until he left the territory. I was surprised that Mick Foley stuck around, and that's more a tribute to his abilities, his ability to really shock and awe the crowd. But WWF was in a bad way at this point in time. They seemed to have wanted to put their chips in Ahmed Johnson, and that didn't work out for them. They seemed to not know what they wanted to do with Bret Hart's family, i.e. Owen and the Bulldogs. Yokozuna had gotten too heavy to really be a factor of any kind. They had Steve Austin. They had Brian Pillman, who they, did, they really couldn't do anything with because of the injuries. And they had Bret Hart, who we'll talk about later, who's after WrestleMania 12, or WrestleMania 11, excuse me, yeah, WrestleMania 12, I'm sorry, 12, lost the match to Shawn Michaels, and we did not know if he was coming back or not. No, he didn't, and he was open to the idea of going to WCW. As a matter of fact, I think right around this time, his contract had expired, which is, is kind of scary for the WWF if they're considering pushing him. That's right, he was in the middle of taking time off, so he was available to WCW. No, you know, this... I agree with you. First of all, I think the WWF would not exist right now had it not been for the Steve Austin thing. And, you know, I'm sorry. I think Vince Russo, at least in the beginning, had some really good ideas and really good concepts. And, you know, I disagree with people who say that Vince Russo ruined wrestling. You know, look at what he inherited. Wrestling was was, you know, wrestling was on its ass. And the WWF especially was on its ass when Vince McMahon started implementing his ideas and, and there's a lot to be said about you know vince russo obviously had a lot of ideas and I, I said this before when we did a a anniversary of the nitro in 2000 the best yeah. attribute that vince russo had was the fact that everyone on the card had something which meant one which meant two things one as a positive was morale was high there was no one just sitting around playing cards in the back just doing job matches, not even going on the road. Everyone had some sort of small angle. The worst part about that was everyone had some sort of angle, which yep. basically amounts to car crash TV because every segment, you, you couldn't turn your head away because you would miss something. Yeah, and, and the, more, the more you do, the less everything means. And, you know, and like I said, he overdid it. You know, it's been talked about before. I mean, Vince Russo, he was great. When he had Vince McMahon, you know, signing off on his ideas and no, Vince, we're not doing that. And, you know, as opposed to when Vince Russo took off to WCW and they put him in charge and they found out that he shouldn't have been in charge. Anyway, the opener for this was a spectacular match between 
Rey Mysterio Jr. and Psychosis, I am almost positive, is Psychosis's WCW debut. Rey Mysterio is still, he's in WWE now, 25 years later. I thought there would be no way that would ever happen because he's too small. But he's out there at 46 years old. The, thankfully, the announcers largely stayed focused on this match as opposed to talking about, you know, Hall and Nash and everything else. Like on Nitro, anytime the cruisers came out, that's all they would talk about. They would ignore the match, but they, they were focused here. And it was someone, someone in the Observer called it the first great match of the 21st century. I think it's still held up well today. I, I think with the pay-per-views, WCW knew they had to it the between nitro and the pay-per-view is with nitro you're selling the rest of the show with the pay-per-view you've already paid for the show so the entertainment the entertainment so typically around this time for the uh, luchadors and the japanese wrestlers they bring mike tenay in to be a color man yes and mike tenay had an extensive knowledge eons more than bobby heenan or dusty Rhodes regarding these talents so it gave the announcing a, a plethora more of legitimacy to it. Both guys had just come from ECW. I psychosis maybe in a few weeks, but Ray was in ECW for a what, he, was, he was there, correct? Or am I making stuff up in my head? <laughs> no, Ray Mysterio was there. Okay. I thought he was not there very long, obviously, but looking at Ray's style here, it was one of those things where you can see the evolution of wrestling firsthand when you come back and watch it. Because I'm sure there were fans of wrestling from the 70s and 80s that were watching that match saying, ah, that's too much flippy bullshit. Ah, it, it, it doesn't look real. Where's the headlocks? Where's the hammer locks? Where are the rest holds? Where, where are the punches and kicks? Fast forward 25 years to AEW or 205 Live. Wrestling fans of my generation are saying the same exact thing that people were saying back in 1996. It, it's the evolutionary chain of wrestling. And, and this is. This is one notch of it right here in this match. There, that's the thing. If I were to watch AEW or uh, NXT, I mean, a lot of the times I come across saying this does not look like a fight at all. This looks like performance art. And there was a little bit of that in this match, but not enough to ruin it, in my opinion. I, I agree with you 100% on that. But I think with, you know, 1996 eyes on it, and if you've been a wrestling fan for, you know, 25 years of that time, you might have a different interpretation of that, though, maybe. I don't know. I know. I can definitely see that. I mean, every every old generation of wrestling fans complains about the new generation of uh, the new generation of wrestling. It's, it's just the way it goes. I mean, when I was a kid in the 70s, I, adults complained that, you know, wrestling's so far fetched nowadays as opposed to the 50s when they had Buddy Rogers and Luthez. And I saw it happen in the 90s. And I see it happen today. You know, people. God, guys in their 20s who are like, oh, wrestling was so much better in the 80s and 90s. It's like, oh, hey, whatever you like. I think that if you don't have some sort of movement towards it, it becomes stale. Because uh, really, when you get down to wrestling, wrestling is very black and white, if not. The characters of any angle are some sort of rehash of something from before. They're really, under a rare exception, isn't something that isn't partially ripped off. So at least if you have a new product in the ring, it gives a freshness to it. 
I, I agree with that. I don't think, you know, even when you go back and watch like Savage versus Steamboat at WrestleMania, it's still a great match, but they are not moving as quickly as the guys do today. They're not showing the athleticism. You know, they, I mean, Mysterio did some awesome things in this match, but I've seen guys, you know, from once again, NXT, even WWE, do things that were more impressive and more athletic. And like you said, it's just the evolution of the sport. And eventually, 20 years from now, if, if wrestling is still a weekly entity on television or whatever devices we're using then, it'll, it'll get more. Unless it goes all the way back to the 1950s style, unless we've hit a, a physical athletic peak in terms of pro wrestling, and we have to go all the way back to the, the Stone Age of wrestling, where we're back to the 50s and, and ground and pound rest hold style, it's going to continue to get this way. No, and for if you want that, you have it available with the UFC. I was completely wrong in the 90s. The WWF brought in Ken Shamrock, and he had a match against Vader that was kind of very UWFI, shooty-type match. And I said, you know what? I think this is going to be the future. No, the future was the rock and the people's elbow. I, I think there could have been a happy medium with that, John. I mean, because... The UFC was gaining ground. They brought in Ken Shamrock. They brought in Dan Severn. Dan Severn was not a good fit for the WWF, obviously. No, but he They was brought not. in Ken Shamrock. And I think they probably had plans for him. But as the story goes, there was not a lot of confidence in Shamrock, both uh, on the microphone and his ability to get to the arena, so to speak. He was a very uh, a flighty individual, supposedly. So I think a lot of a lot of Ken Shamrock is what kept Ken Shamrock from becoming a, a major star in wrestling. Well, two things. Um, I mean, it felt like the wrestling business was going in one direction and it wasn't the Ken Sham Shamrock, like legit badass, you know, that sort of guy. The other story, I, it's not a story I heard. It's, it's a fact that Shamrock it, it, Russo, like I said, I, I see both sides of him. He had some good ideas, but he had this thing about like incest and they wanted him to do an angle where he was sleeping with his sister, Ryan Shamrock, who was on TV. And Ken's like, no, I run a karate dojos in Southern California. I can't do that. And they immediately, they ran out of ideas for him. And I think that's the other Russo thing, which indirectly may have led to Owen Hart passing away where they wanted to run an angle where when Jeff Jarrett and Owen Hart were a tag team, that Owen was sleeping with Deborah, who was with Jeff Jarrett, and Owen being happily married, said he's uncomfortable with that idea. So they said, okay, we'll just run back to Blue Blazer then. And that's kind of what happened. You know, the, the chips kind of fell where they fell. I was going to say it, it directly led to Owen's death, which is, I mean, downright sickening when you think about it. You know, that was their idea of getting back at him for not doing that angle. And Owen, you know, once again, he's like, hey, my kids watch this show. Give me a break. And that was his punishment. And as a result, you know, Owen Hart died in that that tragedy. I mean, you know, if, if you look back at what they asked him to do, I mean, one company wouldn't touch it. They were like, this is too dangerous. You know, this and it turned out, yeah, it was too dangerous. So and anyway. It, that's a sore spot with me. It's disgusting to think about. The guy died over some petty nonsense where, you know, we already went over it. 
One other thing about this match, Mysterio had a crew cut. Uh, it wasn't even a crew cut. His head was shaved, and Bobby Heenan made a reference to a movie Demi Moore appeared in where she had to shave her head, or she elected to shave her head for the role, and I completely forgot about that. G.I. Jane, it was all the talk 25 years ago. I've never seen the movie G.I. Jane. It really was the B-side to strip tease for Demi Moore. Um, and really, after that, I mean, that was that was kind of, I think both of them were box office bombs, if I recall correctly. And that was sort of the beginning of the end for her uh, as a marketable movie star. Uh, yeah, it really was. Not that she was a, a megastar anyway, but one of my friends went to see striptease. And I'm like, how was it? And he's like, oh, it wasn't that good. And she was like naked for like two seconds. Like, you're, you're a bigot. You're a rube, for Christ's sake. Who, who even cares about wanting to see her naked anyway? Not that she's not attractive, but you have other options. Yeah, paying seven fifty for two seconds of nudity seems a bit uh, of a reach. So yeah, yeah, that's like <laughs> that's like a thousand dollars per second or whatever it is. Next match, Bubba Rogers against John Tenta in a variation of a coal miner's glove match. They have a loaded sock uh, at the top of the pole filled with I don't know silver dollars or something. The problem is that this sock is at least 10 feet higher than the top rope. And we're dealing with two super heavyweights. Do these guys not understand the, the, the physics of this? You would have thought that normally in wrestling, when the ring crew puts the ring together early in the afternoon, guys will come down and look what's going on. And someone, whether it was the agent, whether it was the two combatants, whether it was Jimmy Hart, whether it was whomever, would look at that and go, nope. But you would I think. don't know how this happened. You would, yeah, you would think. Or you would think, okay, the pole's up there. This is how it's going to happen. We'll just put it in the middle of the ring. We'll just put it in the corner. We'll put it somewhere. We'll give both guys a stock full of coins. Something to make. This was a disaster. I mean, Big Bubba Rogers was a really good worker. Tenta wasn't. The match was, it was not a good match. Poor Jimmy Hart. Had to shimmy up this pole. The guy was 53 years old. He looked scared to death doing it. And I don't blame him because this did not look like the single most secure thing in the world that they easily could have fallen down. If Jimmy Hart was the, not 135 pounds, he probably would have fell on the back of his head. Good point. I mean, this, this, this thing looked extremely dangerous. Thomas, I don't remember this, but like, John Tenta had half his head shaved. Do you remember what led up to this? Because I don't. I believe John Tenta was kicked out of the Dungeon of Doom. And he was the shark at that time when he was in the Dungeon of Doom. And they shaved half of his head, you know, kind of as a, you know, shave his head gimmick. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that as getting back with, against Jimmy Hart and his guys, he was going to just keep his hair that way. Okay, that's uh, that's actually a weird kind of in your face sort of thing. I'll just leave it like this and you know we'll, we'll do it that way. All right, next, we have a taped fist match between Hacksaw Jim Dun Duggan and Diamond Dallas Page. One thing I had forgotten about is DDP having that smells like teen spirit music coming to the ring. I mean, it's just like the Nirvana song. I don't know how he got away with this. I uh, exactly. And this is post 
1985 when you can just steal whatever the hell you want to and just, you know, not worry about rights and <laughs> copyright infringement and things like that. Hacksaw Jim Duggan from 1988 until the end of his career is probably my least favorite wrestler of all time. There was nothing more annoying than watching Hacksaw Jim Duggan fight Ted DiBiase in the WWF and a USA champ breaking out. Because Ted DiBiase wasn't from Switzerland or Germany, obviously. But the lack of ability, the fact that his finishing maneuver, apparently the three-point stance was too much for him. So he would tape his fist and knock out the guy in these job matches, which somehow, I don't know, doesn't result in an automatic DQ, but for whatever reason, it, it, it was what it was. This was really before DDP kind of, I don't want to say learned how to wrestle, but you watch his matches, you know, in 97 and 98 compared to this, like he, he's clueless out there with Duggan. And part of that's probably a good part of that's probably Duggan's fault, but. Oh, no questions asked. I mean, Duggan tore his hamstring in 1987, and he was he was really good in Mid-South Wrestling before that. Slowed down a little bit like 86, 87, slowed way down when he got to the WWF. He got fired for being in a car with Iron Sheik and smoking pot, and then he came back and he almost immediately... No, wait, he did it on a boss show. He tore his hamstring. He didn't pull it. He tore it. And that's supposed to be agonizing. And he never made it all the way back from that. And that's kind of surprising because when Duggan got to the WWF, he was still in his early to mid thirties, was he not? Yes, he, he was. was. Under thirty five. No, he he was still a young guy, and he was one of the guys that you look at and you're like, all right, Hulk Hogan might have might have his first like challenger to the number one babyface in the company, they, they immediately screwed up his push. Well, when you think about it, Duggan's probably only a year, you know, two years older than guys like Bret Hart and Scott Hall and, and Kevin Nash. There was no reason that it, you know, obviously I think what happened to him was just the one, he was never a, a supreme athlete. He was more of a character always anyway. So the athleticism is going to wane anyways as, as he gets older. But the fact is, a lot of guys in the WWF in the mid to late eighties run really just pumped the brakes on their in-ring work. Cause they had to get to the next town the next night. That is 100% true. And you said you watched the show a couple of months ago, a USA USA chant broke out like as if diamond Dallas page was some evil foreigner. And I figured this out a long time ago. In the 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, people just liked chanting USA, USA at the wrestling matches. I mean, I, I went to see Bret Hart versus Dino Bravo, and people started chanting USA, USA as if Bret's not from Calgary. Selective memory. What's that? Selective memory. Bret's mom's from New York, I think. So they just, you know, they, they adopted ah. Native, Native uh, American. That's right. They all knew that. Here's the, another thing I want to throw out. Well, two things. Number one, this is the third stipulation match they've had in a row, and we're not even at the middle of the card. I mean, look, I'm not going to tell you I'm a wrestling expert and that I know absolutely everything, but when you do that, you make stipulation matches mean a whole lot less. I don't think one person bought this pay-per-view because it made a difference that this is a taped fist match or that we have a sock at the top of the pole match. And I don't think these matches would have been any better or any worse 
had, and you know why I'm ahead of myself. There's a, this is the second one in a row. The third one's coming up. You know, you're making these things meaningless. And that even comes down to today. You look at the uh, Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. There was a time when Hell in a Cell was only used as a complete feud blow-off. And now you have a card with three, sometimes four matches that are in the Hell in a Cell. That makes the match that is the main event and blow-off mean multitudes of times less than what it would normally be. And, and, and it falls in the categories here. A tape fist match, a, a Carson City coin saloon match, these matches mean nothing. No one's going to fork over $24.95 for da- Diamond Dallas Page and Jim Duggan in a tape fist match. No one's going to fork over four ninety five for that. No, I'm with you. It, it doesn't matter. And what you're doing is you're pouring water on the real stipulation matches. For example, when The Undertaker wrestled Shawn Michaels in the first Hell in the Cell, I mean, they had a feud built up coming in, and it's like, okay, we've created this match where, you know, these two guys who want to kill each other are going to have the opportunity. Now it's just, yeah, we'll throw people in there. And, you know, there was a part of me that thought when Hell in the Cell first debuted, oh, good, this will eventually lead to the, you know, WWE's version of War Games. It never did. It, it lim- lead to the Elimination Chamber which the first couple times around was fine. Then it just became totally watered down and kid friendly and sucks. So sometimes pretty much almost all the time, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Exactly. It's like blood. The more it's used, the less it matters. All right. Now we have the third in a row stipulation match, the nasty boys versus the public enemy in a dog collar match. 25 years ago, I remember watching it and thinking, all right, it's okay. It's a little bit messy, but, you know, I don't hate it. And today, I I watched it two days ago. I thought it was a complete disaster. It was an ECW-style match, and once that is no longer novel, and it kind of was no longer novel by this point, it's just trash. And it went way too long, and, you know, finally they went to the finish, and when at the end, Bobby Heenan who was up and down, I think, at best in WCW. He just says, you know, nothing's been settled. It's like, well, why did we have the match? (laughs) If you ever want to question the genius of Paul Hammond, he managed to get insanely over the public enemy, who no one gave a rat's ass about outside of ECW. And... This match being an abomination, typically everyone will point the finger at the Nasty Boys just because they're unpopular in the wrestling smart fandom of the world. But you go back and you watch, they had those Tupelo-style brawls with Harlem Heat. They had the matches with Cactus Jack and Max Payne and Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. They're perfectly fine. I mean, they're not, they're not textbook classic matches, but they're very watchable. Then bring the public enemy. The public enemy did absolutely nothing for WCW. They did the table spot. And after the second time they did the table spot, okay, what do you got now? And they brought out the table spot. They were a one-trick pony in a wrestling war where everything was under a microscope. And they were absolutely dreadful. No, Heyman was an absolute genius with the way he presented them, and the way he protected them, they were over like crazy in ECW. But 
like you said, once you take them out of that their that environment, I mean, you could tell why they were just two indie guys their entire careers before that. And apparently, they had a really inflated opinion of themselves because apparently they had a WWF tryout match, and I believe they were wrestling the uh, acolytes, Bradshaw and Farouk, and they went over the match, and uh, apparently. I believe it might have been Rocco Rock told John Bradshaw Layfield he wanted to get all these things in and, you know, do this and do that. And they just stiffed the hell out of them. I heard about and I, this. And I think, yeah, I think they, it was quite some time before they got another call back. So, uh, like, hey, you know, once again, give it, give them credit for, you know, give Heyman credit for getting them over and making them a whole bunch of money. <laughs> all right. Next up, Dean Malenko against Disco Inferno. It was a pretty good match. I mean, I saw Gene and Joe Malenko wrestling in Japan in 1990, 1991. I thought they were fine. I thought they were a good team, but I thought they would be nothing in the United States. And, you know, they were too small. Even in Japan, I felt like they had a low ceiling. And good for Gene Malenko. 25 years later, he's still getting a paycheck from the WWF. And he had a career. Once again, good for him. He he, you know, made made my prediction fall on its face. Dean, um, I believe it was nineteen ninety seven. Was uh, every year they did a PWI five hundred, and I believe in nineteen ninety seven, it might have been ninety six, but ninety six ninety seven, Dean was the number one rated wrestler in the PWI five hundred. Which, when you consider his placement on the card, was was kind of astonishing. And at that time, as, as one would expect, the aftermags were very pro-WCW. See, sometimes you could kind of, they would do a little, bit, a little bit of a foreboding about what was going to happen. So I thought around 97, I thought, okay, maybe they're going to give Dean the push for the U.S. title and give him a push, maybe a semi-main event, but it never, never materialized. Watch this match with Disco Inferno. Disco is probably an average worker on his best day. I thought this was a very good match. I wouldn't say it was a you know four or five star match, but I think it might have been one of the best matches that Disco ever had. Oh, I I can't imagine it not being one of the best matches he ever had. Nothing against the guy, Glenn Gilberti, I think his name is, but I mean I don't understand how this gimmick kept getting pushed out there. I mean years later, it it's such a one trick pony. You know, you have that one person in the room, ha, 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 he's dancing to disco music like it's 1977. But that gets old after a while, but it WCW kept using it. I never, I never understood. I, I can try to answer this question. People always say, you know, or ask, what's the worst gimmick ever? And a lot of times it'll, you know, the answer will be the Red Rooster. And the reason why the Disco Inferno isn't lumped in with the red rooster same reason why the undertaker isn't lumped in with the red rooster and that is when those when disco had his gimmick he worked it and he actually owned it he didn't come out there and go oh i'm a, I'm a disco dance in the 70s have a sour puss on his face and just go out there and do the match and, and be and do the hustle and and loot and take the fall and, and bitch and moan again he owned it and, and the fact that he kept owning it and owning it and, and just and pushing and pushing it himself if you watch Monday Nitros from 1997, I mean, 
for a lower mid-card guy, this goes pretty over. I mean, he's not NW over. He's not Sting over. He's not Lex Luger over. But in that mid-card niche, he's over. Well, uh, you've somewhat changed my mind. I mean, you've you've actually made a really good case. I mean... It you know it's something that the live crowd likes to see. Uh, I mean, you have people go out and like mimic him doing the disco dance. Again, the guy actually learned how to. Di- he could do it. He learned how to disco dance. So I'll give him credit for that. You've moved the needle on me, Mister Bain. Well, second time today. I said second time today because I was originally going to do these in reverse order, and you know. Thomas like, well, it's your show. Do what you want. But he basically hinted that he didn't think it was a good idea. And the more I thought about it, I'm like, you know what? It isn't a good idea. Anyway, now we have a bit of a disaster. Steve McMichael against Joe Gomez. Steve McMichael, I believe it's his first pro match. Uh, Way too long. They should have just had Steve go out there and bury this guy in less than 60 seconds. Um, The one thing that stood out to me and I'm, I'm not trying to be insulting here, is he comes out with Deborah McMichael, his then wife, and she had so much work done in so little time. I, I barely recognized her from the you know, 1998 through 2001 Deborah. I think Mongo had already turned on Kevin Green. Uh, yes, he had. He was one of the horsemen. I don't, yeah, so, I, so he was already – this might have been his first um, – singles match. I don't, I don't think he wrestled on Saturday night or Nitro yet, but it was designed to get Mongo over. And like you said, it should have been 60 seconds. Anything longer than that was going to show his flaws. And he had about a thousand of them. And he, Gomez was a credible worker in, in, in allowing someone to get over, but he can't work miracles here. And giving them two six minutes was just way too much time. It was way too much time. I mean, they, they just ran out of stuff to do. By the way, for those unaware, uh, Steve McMichael really was a big name in the sports world. He was a pro a Pro Bowl defensive lineman for the Chicago Bears back when, you know, it was 1985 and they were having their own rap videos and Jim McMahon was on the cover, you know, had his own commercials, etc. So, you know, you're thinking a guy with McMichael's athleticism could have, maybe you would think he could have done more in the wrestling business. It just didn't happen for him. Well, I think what really hurt him was I believe he was already pushing 40 when he got into the business. Yes. So it's like any other sport. I mean, you can't go out at 40 years old and become a pro golfer from, you know, you're just picking up a club for the first time or tennis or anything else. There's going to be a, a learning curve that, you know, what you learn at 21 and what you learn at 40 is fine, but that person at 40 doesn't have the 20 years of experience the 21-year-old is going to have down the road. They're already behind the eight ball in that in that record. I mean, if now, you, you think – no, Go ahead, Thomas. You can be a gimmick – no, you can be a gimmick wrestler. You can be a brawler. You can be whatever. But you're, not, you're never going to be technically sound starting out at 40. And if you think about it, Michael Jordan, who's obvious are – arguably the greatest athlete in history couldn't play double a baseball at the age of 31. So, I mean, that that's a good point on your part, Thomas, you know, like he's off to a late start already, 
But at the same time, you had guys, I'm not sure when Ernie Ladd or Wahoo McDaniel started in wrestling, probably a lot earlier, so they're not really a good comp. Yeah, another good point on your part. Yeah, Wahoo and Ernie Ladd were wrestling in the offseason. They had been, at worst, mid to late 20s. That's right. I forgot they were wrestling on the offseason. They didn't just um, stop playing football and, and jump into wrestling. Um, next up is a Ric Flair interview. Another thing I had forgotten, and she did it every single time she was out there, woman would flirt with Gene Okerlund. I mean, she would be putting her hands all over him, being very suggestive. I'm sure everyone got a big kick out of that, including Okerlund. Um, Flair always liked Gene. Flair and, and Kevin Sullivan were always good friends, so I'm sure it was a, a, put, a rib they all put together, and it made for entertaining television, in my opinion, is this gorgeous woman fl- flirting with this balding older guy. Yeah. And if you watch the interviews on Monday Nitro throughout the run, Gene's a perv, but <laughs> it's yes. put it in, in uh, certain perspectives here. So I don't think there's any ribbing quote unquote being done on Gene and hell. If anything, Gene might've encouraged it. <laughs> Without question. And no, Kevin went along with it. So it all worked out. Ric Flair, in my opinion, is one of, if not the greatest interview of all time. But even when you're a great interview, like it's like anything else, you can go into a slump. And I used to make excuses for Flair being around this time, arguably the worst interview in the game. And I know that's saying a lot. And you're, if you're sitting there like, wow, Ric Flair, the worst. No, no. If you go back, to the early nitros, he's horrible. And I used to say, yeah, but they're not giving him anything to talk about. He's not in a program. He's just out there going, you know, mean gene, woo, and you know, just falling back on his cliches. He's got something to talk about here. And it was still a bad interview. I was a little bit taken aback. And you took the words right out of my mouth. After the Randy Savage program with Flair, which was I thought was very underrated in terms of uh historical angles in the 1990s he had nothing until the nwo so you figure that's at least a good uh a good nine ten months because the dungeon of doom stuff was not a really a good you know angle the alliance and hokamini was one of the worst angles of the decade and then he uh he was uh quote-unquote fired by eric bischoff so you really look at it he almost had a year and a half from early 96 all the way until he came back in the fall of 97 with that run with uh, Kurt Henning, where he really had nothing going on. And this is Ric Flair. I mean, you would think even at 46 years old, he's an asset to you, and they they just mis- misused him. But, I mean, some of it, like I said, like on this night during this interview, you know, he just wasn't very good. Ric Flair versus Conan for the United States Heavyweight Championship. Uh, Conan comes into the match with the belt. Flair, I mentioned again, he's 46 years old here. He is still a bump machine. Little story here in 1995, a year earlier, I lived in Drakeett, Mass, and the WCW was coming to Hartford, Connecticut, like maybe two, two and a half hours away. And on the day of the show, I'm like, you know what? I don't have anything really going on. I'm going to the show to see Ric Flair for the last time. 
and Rick was still out there in 2008. So I, I was 13 years early on seeing my last Ric Flair match. By the way, it was my last. Yeah, it was my last live Ric Flair match, but I could have waited. And the part about the match that I wanted to bring up, because obviously we can talk about Ric Flair all night, but one wrestler that I never could get a read on was Conan. Now, the NWO Conan and that Wolfpack Conan, I thought was just dreadful. He was channel-changing heat for me. But this Dungeon of Doom, pre-Dungeon of Doom Conan, he was very hit or miss. Like you would watch him and read Ric Flair and go, okay, this guy can go a little bit. Of course, it's Ric Flair. But then he would go against other guys on whether it was Nitro or uh, the Worldwide or whatever. And he would have good matches as well. But there'd be other times it'd just be complete clunkers. And he would just be very, I guess, basic in, in, his, in his in-ring work. And I think once he got to the NWO, it was just one of those things where he played a heel he was going to kind of you know, dumb down his ring ability and just and, and work one style. But I always you know, kind of wish I watched more of his stuff in AAA because I wonder how good he actually was at his peak. I know he was extremely popular in AAA, but I just wondered how good he really was at his absolute peak. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of his AAA stuff, but I do remember WCW signing him. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, WCW, this guy, you know, is huge in Mexico. And he actually did a good interview before this match. But, you know, if you want to see guys from, you know, the guys from Mexico, I mean, I want to see Rey Mysterio. I want to see, you know, the guys who can fly. I think maybe one of the reasons why um, Conan was brought in was one, his popularity in case they wanted to, you know, cross over to Mexico. But two, he was apparently a facilitator for, t- for a lot of these luchadors coming in. He was the that guy who would come out and bring guys like psycho- Psychosis or La Parca or things like that. So he was one of those kind of, I won't call him a moolah uh, type uh, agent, but along those lines where you know, guys were coming in through the recommendation of Conan or Conan would you know, have the stroke to get them in. That I heard along. Th- that is true. I know that. So, I mean, it, it makes sense. One thing that happened in this match, uh, Ric Flair has woman and Elizabeth at ringside with him. Elizabeth took a bump that I am close to 100% sure she was not supposed to take. I think that was like a legitimate accident. Conan and, you know, flew into her. Yeah, I think Elizabeth before this time really took maybe two bumps in her career that I can think of. One was in the mega power split. One was when Honky Tonk Man shoved her down both of which were heavily controlled by Randy Savage. And I can't, the bump that I, on that match, I, I can't see Randy getting the okay for. So, I mean, not that they were even together, but I'm sure Randy still had his, you know, his ear to the, the trap, so to speak. Going all the way, so. um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure either way. One thing I forgot about, another thing I forgot about that happened every match, woman would be screaming her lungs out at ringside throughout the entire match. And it was very distracting. The finish was absolutely awful on this match. Uh, the woman, Ric Flair and Elizabeth had the referee distracted this referee. Like they made him look clueless and woman hit Conan in the back of the head with her shoe. And Conan acted like he got shot in the head, like JFK. I will say that, this version of woman is a lot more entertaining than the 1989 version where she just stood there and really did nothing. 
with uh, Doom. At least this time, she's kind of ha-ha entertaining. She's not really a heat magnet. She's more Ric Flair arm candy. Elizabeth has the charisma of a $5 bill. So I can't really say that she's going to really move the needle in terms of getting Ric Flair more heat. So, so credit to woman for getting Ric Flair the heat right there. Because at, at some point in time, when you have two valets, it seems kind of overkill to bring Lauren Anderson down there to run in or Steve McMichael to run in down there or Jeff Jarrett or whoever's a part of the horseman at that time, Chris Benoit, for example. So woman did her job there. And really at this point in time, Elizabeth, if the NWO hadn't really been a thing and then Hogan bringing her in to stifle Randy Savage, I could see them phasing Elizabeth out at this point in time. Cause there really wasn't a whole lot for her to really do with this at this program. No, I, I remember the clash, a clash of the champions when she returned, got a big rating because she had been off television. I want to say for three or four years and everyone just kind of kind of wanted to know what she looked like now. Um, but I mean, before the match, they had an interview with Flair woman and Elizabeth backstage and Gene Okerlund as so uh, woman, if, uh, or excuse me, Elizabeth, if Ric Flair wins the title tonight, are, are you going to have a big party? And she's just, she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll probably have a big party. And that was it. Like he put it on a T for her and she's like, yeah, sure. At least she didn't say, oh yeah. Oh, that um, would not have been good. But the credit to Elizabeth, when she joined the NWO and became with Lex Luger, she really did a complete 180 in terms of her personality to where it was kind of surprising. She had that, you know, kind of buried in her all this time. That, that's a good point. And it, I think the reason I've always felt like it's easier to be a heel in wrestling than to be a babyface. It's easy to get people to dislike you. Getting them to like you is a lot harder. Ric Flair wins the United States title for the for the first time since 1981. He had had it, and I was really surprised he won the title. I figured Flair would win on a countout or a DQ or it'd be like a double DQ. Like Ric Flair with the U.S. title. It really felt a little bit weird at this point. It was almost like, okay, we're we're downgrading Ric Flair a little bit. This is usually a title to get younger talent over. But at the same time, once again, he's 46. Maybe, you know, it's like, okay, Rick's just not the main event anymore. And and you bring up a good point here, but on the other side, I'm surprised that Ric Flair accepted the US title. I would have thought that his ego would have said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not a mid card guy. I'm in the mix with the Hulk Hogan's and the Stings and the Giants of the world. Let Conan win by DQ or whatever, and I'll just, we'll, you know, have another Horseman run. Because when the Horseman has no has little panache, when the head honcho of the group and the only title holder of the group is holding a secondary title, then why isn't the TV champion? Mongo and Arn aren't the tag team champions. So doesn't that make your group seem second rate then? It does. You don't see Hulk Hogan running around with the U.S. title. And that's not me knocking the United States title. It's just it wasn't a main event championship belt. And and I agree with you. I'm surprised Rick went along with this. Rick had to have thought at this point in time. I don't know if he was angling because you hear like 
stories, you know, throughout the 80s. And then when Rick finally jumped and then in, you know, the late 90s, when he was having his troubles with uh, Eric Bischoff, that he was always looking to possibly jump back to the WWF. So maybe this was Rick's way of accepting it and saying, okay, if they have something for me later on, great. If not, I'm going north. There was t- around this time or uh, during the time where Bischoff had him suspended, he definitely wanted to go to the WWF. And believe it or not, there were a lot of people in the WWF, a lot of the wrestlers who were like, don't bring that guy in. He's an asshole, which I mean, Rick, you know, when he was the booker in 1990, he could have been a lot more diplomatic with the talent. No questions asked. And a lot of guys held that grudge. Um, Next match, Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit, both members of the Four Horsemen, against the Giant, Paul White, better known as the Big Show, and Kevin Sullivan. Not much of a match. I mean, as soon as the Giant tags in, maybe a minute later, he choke slams and pins Arn. Then something weird happens after the match. Sullivan and Benoit are brawling in the ring. Benoit is stomping on Kevin Sullivan. He's giving him a real beating. And out of nowhere, woman comes in the ring. She is with Ric Flair, with the four horsemen, and begs Benoit to stop stomping on Kevin Sullivan. It wasn't acknowledged on TV, but a lot of people knew that she and Sullivan were married at the time. Thomas, do you recall this going anywhere, or did they drop it after this night? Oh, the Kevin Sullivan Taskmaster stuff was going was a, was a tremendous feud, actually. They had the false count anywhere brawls later on down the road on clash of the champions kevin sullivan brought uh miss jackie in the kind of combat woman to where miss jackie would call woman by her shoot name and call her nancy in interviews there was this um work shoot angle going on with this feud there was and to steal a wrestling phrase you know kevin sullivan was uh, in charge of this program, and he booked his own divorce. He really did, yeah, because to make the angle seem legitimate, he uh, had his wife tra- you know, travel the road, Chris Benoit, and you know, stay in the same hotels, ride in the car together, everything else. And you know, they fell for each other, and history was made, I guess, though. So. Gotta be and people wonder why Randy Savage kept Elizabeth in a closet when they were still together. I mean, the guy knew something. Thomas, I'm going to ask you, okay, we've talked about Chris Benoit. We've talked about uh, Nancy Benoit. How are you when it comes to watching footage of those two, considering what happened in 2006? I, it's just one of those things to me where I can understand why people are uncomfortable, why people will not watch that and anything with Chris Benoit. I can watch it. I can, I can turn off the fact that this is a man who did something very unspeakable, but at the same time, this is, this is the product. To me, turning off the Chris Benoit-Kurt Angle match, hurt Kurt Angle at this point in time. Chris Benoit's dead. So I don't think it's, Necessarily fair to punish these participants in Benoit matches by boycotting everything. Hey, Thomas, you faded out really badly at the end of that. Can we do that one more time? Yeah, sure. <laughs> 
All right, go ahead. Uh, to me, I don't think it's necessarily fair to punish the other participants in Chris Benoit's matches for the things that Chris Benoit did. Now, I, I think everyone can agree that what Chris Benoit did was you know, truly heinous and unspeakable. And I understand why people feel uncomfortable and will not watch his matches anymore. But again, like I said, I'm not going to watch, I'm not going to not watch a Chris Benoit-Kurt Angle match from WWE in 2003 because of Chris Benoit. To me, that punishes what Kurt Angle did in that match. And that's why I think necessarily not necessarily fair. Uh, that You know what? Your answer pretty much mirrors mine. Like, I respect someone who says, you know, I'm not going to watch anything Benoit was involved in. I'm not going to watch anything Nancy was involved in. It's just too painful to see her considering, you know, how she died. But I can I can separate the two. I can watch a Jimmy Snooker match. I can watch a a Dynamite Kid match or whatever. You know, it's it's you just learn to block out block out who the person was and just let them entertain you. And you're right, letting the other person in the match entertain you as well. Finally, we get to the main event. It is Sting, Randy Savage, and Lex Luger against. Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and a mystery partner. Now, when they first, WCW first signed Hall and Nash, I figured, you know, they're just going to be typical heels felt uh, fed to Hulk Hogan and Sting. And I give WCW a lot of credit. They, they used them correctly, at least at first, and they got a lot out of them. I think, you know, everyone who wasn't online was asking, oh my God, who's the third person going to be? If you had internet access, which not everyone did in 1996, believe it or not, you knew what the deal was. It was either going to be, it was scheduled to be Hulk Hogan, but if Hulk Hogan backed out at the last minute, which he was kind of known to do, they were going to switch to Sting. And as soon as the match starts, um, Lex Luger gets stretchered out and... I, I I I put it together right away. I'm like, wow! I am about to see Hulk Hogan as a heel for the first time since 1981. Thomas, what were your thoughts coming into the match? Well, coming into the match, I had four options in mind, none of which were Hulk Hogan or Sting. I thought based on the match where they said, okay, as the match started, it was two on three, so I thought certainly. They're not going to let Holland Nash beat these two, three guys, two on three, the three, you know, three of the top faces in WCW. So I assumed then that either Luger or Savage was going to jump, was going to you know, turn on the other two. Then I thought, okay, well, this is supposed to be a war. So that's why I kind of thought Savage kind of fell in back, and Luger, because they're both WWF and had just recently jumped over in the past year. Then I thought, okay, you know, I'm at this time, I'm. Um, 13 years old, 12 years old. So I maybe Shawn Michaels is a part of the clique. And then I thought it was going to be Bret Hart because of the fact that he hadn't been on television in four months and he was not under contract. He was doing Lonesome Dove, I believe, at the time. That's why he was off. So I really never, and, and honestly, I never saw Hulk Hogan as being turning heel because he makes money off of new heels. So I kind of thought Hogan would go into that perspective. And Sting never really entered my mind because I really thought if Sting had turned, and honestly, if Sting or Luger or Savage, if any of them had turned on each other, 
it would have been a dud to me. If Lex Luger had turned for the 35th time in WCW, it would have killed the angle dead. Randy Savage, eh, it might have had some legs to it. Hulk Hogan was the only one that would have made this work full stop. I agree with you. More on that in a minute. I almost forgot Michael Buffer did the ring introduction for this match, and he said that the babyface team was going to defend the honor and perhaps the existence of WCW. I just cracked up at the idea of these guys defending the honor of WCW. Let's talk a little bit more about Luger. I mean, by this point, I had kind of figured out, I I mean, I'm, I'm generally a Lex Luger fan. I liked him. Even when he was in Florida, I liked him in 85, 86. Then he came to do to the NWA in 87. I was a fan. But by this point, Lex Luger, you know, in 87, he was a tall guy with a great physique and he was good looking. And now guys like that were a dime a dozen. And that's all all he was, was a blown up dude who couldn't couldn't do interviews anymore, couldn't work anymore. Didn't seem like he didn't care. He's collecting a paycheck. And all the baby faces were were wearing sting makeup, and Luger literally looked like a clown out there. I couldn't help but laugh. It made me wonder. I guess they had to put the main event stars in there to give the NWO a little more credibility. But I thought it would have made more sense, given that it was a tag team type match, to go Sting and the Steiner brothers in this regard. But I guess if you bring Hogan Hall and Nash in, it looks like a total mismatch, and it really doesn't give the NWO that that wow factor with three stars, you know, laying there all 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 beat up. But I guess the, the question that I had there was again, I honestly, once Hogan came down came down the aisle, it was it was a foregone conclusion. But I think the best part about it was no one had really uh, smartened up the announce crew. So as Hogan's walking down, obviously Bobby Heenan had a, at this point, a 15-year-long feud with Hulk Hogan, 12-year uh, feud with Hulk Hogan at this point in time, throughout the AWA, WWF, and WCW just disliking him. Heenan screams, what side's he on? Not knowing that the fact that Hogan really was going to turn on Randy Savage at that point in time. And apparently the, the back office the, uh, behind the curtain was pissed about that. I did not know that because I thought that was an excellent little uh, addition to the angle where Bobby Heenan, you're right. He's like, you know, well, what side is he on? And Dusty and Shivani are like, oh, don't be ridiculous. And as soon as Hogan leg dropped Randy Savage, Heenan's like, you know, what have I been saying about this guy all these years? I thought it was a great touch. It was a great touch, but it really it came down as far as I know, I could be wrong here. But it was really a shoot comment by Bobby Heenan just ragging on Hulk Hogan, not knowing that Hogan was – apparently they hadn't smartened up the announce crew. That would not surprise me because I know during the Nitro era, they were not smartening up the announce crew as far as what their plans were. They, they said they wanted a more natural reaction, which I kind of disagree with. One thing I would have changed about this match, they had Lex Luger – do some spot where he gets knocked out of the ring and stre- and gets stretchered out. Um, to me, eh, that's a good way to make a baby face look weak. A way to make your baby faces look strong is Savage, who was kind of seemed like the captain of this team, you know, grabs the mic. Oh, there's only going to be two of you. There's not going to be three of you. 
Well, I'm not going to give you any excuses when you lose. One of us is going to going to the back. Here, let's do rock, paper, scissors, and have Luger go to the back that way instead of making him look weak. That's a good point. I, I agree with that because it really makes the NWO and just these two guys look stronger than all of WCW before the match even starts. Exactly. Like, okay, we'll fight two. Because Hogan doesn't come down until the match is, until the match is really over. Sting, Luger stretchered out. Savage is laying there in a prone position. Sting's laying on the floor. Hogan's picking the, Hogan's picking the bones at this point in time. Yeah, 100% true. And you know what? Having the three announcers all cheerleading Sting and Savage throughout the match, I thought was a, a bit much. And the whole match it's, itself was a total time kill. I mean, no matter what they did in there, everyone's just sitting waiting to see who the third guy was going to be. And obviously it was Hogan. When Hogan did the leg drop, most of the fans started cheering. And my theory for this, when it comes to wrestling, wow, you know, isn't was less, you know, oh no, Hogan turned. It was more like, wow, we got to see something tonight. And you know something about that because Hogan had really gotten stale. And well, Hogan had left the WWF rather stale, and he had the novelty factor when he first got to WCW, but he wore out that super mega baby face push really quick. So I wonder if the garbage being thrown in the ring for this was necessarily legitimate or not. Because I think, like you said, I think a lot of people were like, oh, wow, we just saw something really historic in person. I don't think there are very many people that were pissed off about it. And the subsequent weeks and months thereafter where half the crowd's in NWO t-shirts supports my argument. I agree with you. When, like I said, when it happened, most of the crowd was cheering. Then the throwing of debris in the ring began, and I watched this on Peacock, and Peacock kind of cut out the end of the show where Tony Schiavone yells, Hogan, you can go to hell, and the, it's raining debris. In my notes right here, one word with a question mark at the end of it, plants. Did WCW have someone at ringside, or people at ringside, ready to throw I mean, they were just throwing crumpled up pieces of paper and cups into the ring, so it was nothing dangerous. Like, do you think that 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 they might have been that smart to make it look good on television? Because the fans, you know, they didn't seem upset. Absolutely, I I think they at this point, I think they had to have been. And and keep in mind, you don't need two hundred people to do that. If you can have you know five or ten people throw cups and papers into the ring, it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be a copycat situation where other people are going to see it and they're going to do it just to do it. Well, not that they're mad, but hey, this guy's through it, so I'm going to throw mine. I thought exactly that when, oh, this guy, we can just throw stuff in the ring, let's do it. And like you said, it looked like Hulk Hogan was finished. And, and I mean, you know, he couldn't go back to WWF at this point, and he had run his course in WCW. Um, you know, like I said, second career. And there was talk that Kevin Nash, especially Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, didn't want Hulk Hogan in the group. Nash and Hall were legit friends. The invasion was the hottest angle in wrestling at the time. And, you know, just basically my I have heard that, you know, Nash especially did not want to share. But at the end, I think all three guys came out ahead in that transaction, Hall and Nash. I think greatly benefited from Hogan being in the in the 
in the group, and Hogan certainly benefited from it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. If it's not Hulk Hogan, this in, in unless it's maybe Bret Hart or Shawn Michaels, this is another footnote of a wrestling stable in the in, in the nineteen nineties. I don't know if it's any more different than the Generation X or the Heart Foundation or the Dangerous Alliance. We can look, and that sounds crazy now, knowing what the NWO is. But imagine it's Lex Luger, Hall and Nash, or some of the rumored people that were from WWF who, you know, were rumored to be the names: Paul Nash and Davy Boy Smith, Paul Nash and Brian Adams, Paul Nash and Mabel. None of those guys really make you open your eyes and go, oh, wow, this is going to be a feud that lasts 18 months with WCW. No, of course not. Hulk Hogan does. Hulk Hogan's what made this done. And people will you know, argue back and forth, what was the moment that, that kick-started wrestling in the 1990s? What kick-started the resurgence? And a lot of people will say, you know, because history's written by the victors, of course, Steve Austin's Austin 316 speech at King of the Ring. That was the kickoff to the wrestling resurgence. To me, if this NWO doesn't happen, which happened after the King of the Ring, if this doesn't happen, then the eyes aren't on Stone Cold Steve Austin in 97, 98, 99. I completely agree, as a matter of fact. And it was one of those angles where it, it didn't, it wasn't the, be, the end, it was the beginning. It made you want to see what was going to happen next. What is it going to be like with Hulk Hogan as the bad guy? It, I mean, I agree with you. This really sparked a resurgence in wrestling and it got people talking. And, and when you look at it, this angle ran hot. It, it, it didn't get stale until Starcade 97. Starcade 97 was the top of the, the top of the roller coaster for WCW and the NWO. After that, and now keep in mind, this is before Bill Goldberg, really. Bill Goldberg's in his infancy right now. So we're, we're, I'm pretty much saying the entire Bill Goldberg run was the start of the downhill fall for WCW. It and was all... 1990... Go ahead. No, you, no, you go ahead, man. I want, I want you to finish. After Starcade 97 is when you have the NWO splintering off and, and you have WCW trying to hit the golden goose again and again, trying to strike the NWO, where meanwhile they should have just completely obliterated it after Starcade 97, let people do their own thing. If you want to face Hogan, face Hogan. You want to turn Hogan, turn Hogan. You got Bill Goldberg in your back pocket. And you have Bret Hart now. So why keep beating the fans over the head with NWO? It had a year and a half run where it was printing money. Yeah, I think Bischoff just went back to whatever, what he was comfortable with. Well, this has worked before not realizing that a, a gimmick like that is absolutely going to have a shelf life. Two quick thoughts before I go. Um, Eric Bischoff, you know, Shawn Michaels was out of wrestling for a while, and Eric Bischoff was asked more than once consistently, you know, are, are you interested in bringing in Shawn Michaels? And the adamant, Bischoff was just adamant, I am not bringing in Shawn Michaels under any circumstances. It was really interesting to see him just, you know, publicly bad-mouthing Shawn Michaels and saying, you know, he's never coming here. We don't want that guy. And watching old WWE Network, maybe a year and a half ago, 
like I tuned out of wrestling from like 2002 through 2007, and I had no idea they put together like new NWOs with like Shawn Michaels and the Big Show in it. Yeah, um, and what's ironic about all of this is with the WWF versus WCW invasion angle, they ran it from really the day after WCW folded all the way into Survivor Series, which is about seven and a half, eight months. Now, keep in mind, Time Warner had these big fat contracts to where these guys were getting paid 20 grand a week to sit at home on their duff. So guys like Hall and Nash and Bill Goldberg, they weren't going to take 50 cents on the dollar to come back to wrestle. So you kind of had to have the angle, you know, be what it was. Could you have prolonged it? Could you have pretended the angle didn't exist? Could you have done whatever? Maybe. But the day after the angle ended, the day after Survivor Series was Ric Flair's debut. Three months later, Hogan Hall and Nash show up. You look at that with the NWO. So you look at these things that WWF did, and they, they could have ran the invasion almost as a, a copycat of the NWO, but they chose not to. They, and they brought ECW in, which if Paul Heyman was the mouthpiece for it, great, but Stephanie McMahon was, so it, it really just killed that debt. But they really bungled this up by figuring that they needed to have immediate impact with this invasion. Instead of just saying, okay, we have Lance Storm and Chavo Guerrero and Shane Helms, and they'll just be job guys for us, blah, blah, blah. Look how bad WCW is. And then bring the stars in. And then bring Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff was there for five years in WWE as an on-camera, per, as an on-camera talent. You mean to tell me they couldn't just draw this out and made mega bucks, you know, 18 months after the, invade, after the, the death of WCW? They really have to do it immediately and have guys like Lance Storm and Mike Awesome going against The Undertaker and Chris Jericho and having Steve Austin turn and be a part of the WCW team in order to give that team credibility? No. Two quick things. Number one, Stephanie McMahon being introduced as the owner and leader of ECW was one of the lowest moments for me as a, as a wrestling fan. It was like, hey, this looks like it's going to be pretty good to no, it's not in a matter of seconds. And number two, I have always said that I thought the WWF should have taken on those contracts. They didn't want to because they felt like it would upset their their salary scale. And I would have just told the wrestlers, look, you know, in order to buy the company, we had to take on these contracts. When they expire, they're going to get a contract just like yours. So don't worry about it. I thought they they needed the star power from WCW and they they didn't take it. Thomas, once again, excellent having you on the show. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. All right. And I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our fantastic producer, for all of the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We will see you again next week. This concludes our podcast day. 